0: Sarayanu. You're listening to Spill the Lessie podcast. I'm your co host today, Arjun Singh, together with Harman Singh. Uh, we have a special guest for this episode. We're here with Omar Singh, who's the national director of Khalsa Aid USA. And we're going to get uh, some information from him about his involvement with the organization, um, how he got started, uh, and what Khalsa Aid is currently working on. So, Viria, thank you so much for being on the episode. Thank you. So, I uh, guess just to start, just wanted to get a little bit about your background uh, personally and how you sort of became involved with Khalsa Aid.
1: Sure. So as you said, my name is Omar Singh. I'm the uh, National Director uh, for Khalsa Aid USA. Um, it is a save-off position, obviously. All of our positions are volunteer positions. Um, I grew up in California in the Bay Area, Union City. Uh, went to Irvine for law school, uh, or sorry, for undergrad. Went to Rutgers in Camden, New Jersey for law school. Uh, then I moved back to California. Um, had some jobs that I tried out in the legal field, Um, but ultimately ended up uh, at the district attorney's office in Sacramento County, where I've been now for almost 18 years. Um, I love it there. I've tried pretty much every type of case you could imagine from misdemeanors, uh, felonies, general felonies, uh, domestic violence. Um, I was a supervisor for a little bit. Um, Sexual assault, so child sexual assault, adult sexual assault. Um, And then I went to the gangs and hate crimes unit, uh, and now I'm currently in the homicide unit, uh, and I've been there for about about five years. Um, I got involved with Khalsa Aid uh, initially in 2013. Um, it was simply just seeing their online presence uh, at that point. Uh, the Shahid Budavas was a very very big project. I think that's what uh, outside of the UK, that's what really caught people's attention. Uh, with Khalsa Aid, is that somebody was doing something on a large scale for the Shahid Purvaris. Um Obviously, there's trolls uh, that don't like that you're helping the families of, of Shahids. Uh, and I would frequently comment uh, on on their negative posts. Sure, sure. And uh, Ravi Bhaji and I started talking from there. Um, and he said, do you want to get involved in starting Khalsa Aid in the US? And that's sort of the, when, when things started. Uh, and it didn't formally start in in the U S until 2018. And I've been, been on board since.
0: Oh, okay, so relatively recently. Correct. Gotcha. Okay. So, and I guess for those also who aren't super familiar with the organization in general, could you give us like a little bit of a history on how sort of the, the UK branch, which is the original branch from my understanding, how that got started, you know, a little bit of background on, um, you know, Ravi saying, and kind of like what the current sort of nonprofit organizational structure is, you, you know, branches in different countries, um, or how is it kind of, uh, situated now? Sure.
1: So, um, Ravi Bhaji was born in Singapore, grew up um, in Punjab, and then moved to the UK when he was about 12. Um, and like so many uh, people, when he moved to the UK, uh, he took on a very Western lifestyle. Uh, he w- was in less contact, and he'll tell you the same thing. He's, he spoke about it uh, several times. Uh, he went the West way. Um, he, he cut his hair. Um, he was living you know, a typical Western lifestyle lifestyle. Uh, and he was in contact with his mom. His mom is a very, very jardikala, hardcore woman, um, still has a very strong presence uh, with all of us. And uh, he was looking through a book and in the – sorry, uh, his story always catches me in the throat. Um, he was looking through a book of shahids, of what had happened in 84 and in the 90s, uh, and there was a picture that caught his attention. Uh, and he said, the eyes caught my attention and I knew immediately that it was my childhood friend, Janji Singh chani. Uh, and he called his mom and he said, Mom Channi Ketea. And his mom, uh, Tana marasi. she said, Ten nuki, And he said, No, no, tell me what happened. And she said he was picked up from the house. Uh he was uh Ummaratari Singh. Uh he was taken to various police stations, uh, he was tortured, and that's that's all we know. Nobody ever saw his body. <clears throat> so at that point, Paji uh, said that night, he tied a bug and never took it off. Mm-hmm. Um, he started getting back into Sikhi. He started uh, looking at the, the condition that the Pant was in and what we needed. And it was 1999. So Tenso Sala Kalsa uh he was at the South Hall Nagar Kirtan. And, uh, looking around, like we always see Yuba City, Nagar Eaton, right? Best Jalep best Sog, which stall has the best show? Portoudé? Um, you know, everybody that had top awning before they came and we're going to eat dinner at night, we're taking Langad for granted, right? You tried a little bit of Chaudelé here, you threw half the plate away, right? Then you go get some Jalep you throw that away. Um, and he thought, this isn't what Langar is supposed to be. This is not what Guru Nanak Devji started. It's not what Pai Konegeji envisioned. envisioned. Um, we need to take this to the people that actually need it. Him and a few other like-minded people who are still involved, jindipaji who's a director in Canada, uh, Mr. Bada, Bada Sab's like one of the most esteemed people uh, in Kase, UK. They all got together uh, and they decided that at that time, Bosnia and Serbia were, were at war. Mm. Uh, they rented trucks. They went to a different part of Europe, rented trucks, loaded them with supplies, promised the rental company that they weren't going to drive into Bosnia and Serbia. Uh, and they drove in and they did the first Kalsa Aid mission there. Um, and then it's just grown from there. Uh, one of the, the early criticisms that that Kalsa Aid received was to uh, Punjab, right? So from 99 until 2009, uh, there were no projects in India, um, and Baji had a reason for that. There was a vision for that, and that was I, – I don't want to paint with the broad brush, but there was a lot of organizations uh, and individuals that f- during the 90s raised money – uh, and tried to do projects within Punjab to address, uh, the situation. People that have been, um, left without a, without a breadwinner, um, who had been ravaged by violence, um, trying to help them. And for whatever reason, a lot of people will say money was embezzled. A lot of people will say it was just organizational structures weren't in place for that to be a sustained, for them to be sustained projects. Um those organizations came and went. So Ravi Bhaji's vision was um, he wanted to take 10 years traveling the world, doing projects all over the world to learn and build an infrastructure so that when he did enter Punjab, there would be no break in operations that you could um, have a, a dedicated team in India that would carry out projects without any breaks, without you any build the yes. trust that way. Correct. So, yeah. Um, and it took time, even once you went into India to build that trust, because they had they had seen organizations come and go, and obviously it's going to be the same thing. Yeah. Right. Um. So that's where Callus Aid UK uh, got its start and how it ended up in in Punjab. Now we have teams uh, in England, India, Australia, uh, Canada, obviously the U.S. and uh, Iraq.
0: Those oh, are the full time sort of uh, team. It's dedicated just yes, over there. Yes, dedicated team in Iraq. And I'm assuming those are local people or those are some Correct. six as well who have
1: uh No, so
0: there? it's a local team
1: um, that uh, was already doing some work okay. and we sort of linked with them and then they ended up running our, our day-to-day operations there. And we have team members from all of the different chapters that do go uh, from time to time assist and assist and oversee things as well.
2: Okay. And then just really quickly... How is the organization structured? Like how much autonomy do you have as Khal USA? How much do you you know get from Khal Said International and, and all the other areas?
1: So essentially we are um a separate entity, but we operate at the pleasure of the UK, right? Um it's sort of a licensing agreement for for lack of a better term. Um so the UK makes the, the the rules essentially. The UK sets the standard uh, of what we can and can't do. Um, but in terms of projects that we're going to start in the US, um, the UK doesn't really weigh in on that. They let us. They, they give us a, a pretty wide range of autonomy with that. But we also have a lot of projects that we do together. Um, mm. So, for instance, in Iraq, Africa, um, Haiti, uh, the uh, Poland, Ukraine. Turkey, Morocco, uh, Hawaii. Those are all projects that all of the chapters participated in.
2: Okay. And then just roughly, like, how many volunteers would you say you guys have here in uh, USA, England? Or is that, you know, a harder question to answer?
1: You know, it's a harder question to answer. Um, the UK, um, in terms of volunteers, it's more fluid there. The UK Ooh. has less projects on the ground within the United Kingdom. Um, but they have a big list of volunteers uh, – their vacation structure is different than the U.S., right? Like here so in the true. U.S., here in the U.S., we don't get a lot of vacation. So a lot of the volunteers in the U.K. will dedicate their vacation to going abroad. So they're not volunteers in the sense that that we have, where we have dedicated teams in like Fresno, the Bay Area, New York, New Jersey, um, that are going out on a. A bi-weekly basis doing Seva. Um, so it's hard to gauge how many, but I, I would say a couple hundred in the u k at least. Um, Canada has a lot more volunteers. Um, they probably have upwards of a thousand here in the u s. We probably have close to a thousand. Um, India it, you can't you couldn't even count them. I mean, yeah. they have probably multiple thousands of volunteers on call ready to go.
2: So with the recent Maui Fowers, you guys were there on the ground quick. Was that a decision you made? Did, did you call Said England tell you to do that? Or how, how did that happen?
1: Um, sort of a joint thing. Um, I was actually in in trial when the fire happened. Um, and one of my teammates, she had gone to Hawaii to get married. Um, so I was texting with her, hey, how bad is it? What is it? Because sometimes what you see on the news is not mm. the ground reality. Um, and started talking to a couple of people uh, mm. on the ground there. Uh, and then it was call said UK, Ravi Paji actually called and said, hey, what do you want to do? do we want to send somebody? I said, yes, let us figure out if we can send somebody. If not, you guys can send somebody. Um, but luckily what ended up happening is one of the calls to aid Canada volunteers was actually on, uh, on the big Island on, not on the big Island, sorry, on in Honolulu, he was dropping his, his, his daughter off to college. Uh, and he called me, he says, Hey, do you want me to do anything? I said, can you go over to Maui? And he said, yeah, no problem. Flights from Honolulu to Maui are like 40 bucks. Mm. So he flew over, Um, And he ended up running into uh, a Punjabi family who said, we'll help you, right? Um, It was a husband and wife that moved from Seattle. um, And they just started the projects there. So that gave us a good idea of what was needed. And the minute my trial was over, I got a verdict. We booked tickets and we went.
0: Wow. So I guess that's one thing I'm curious about. So, you know, international catastrophes, unfortunately, like, baddune. So, like, what is your guys' sort of process for determining where to go? In terms, you know, and focusing a project there, right? Obviously, can't be everywhere in the world at once, um, with limited resources.
1: So there's not really a standard uh, process that we go through on figuring it out. Um, everybody's pretty, you know, diligent about watching the news, watching what's going sure. on. Um, we have obviously multiple, multiple WhatsApp groups <laughs> where somebody will say, "Hey, did you see this? What's going on with this?" And Ravi Paji has contacts everywhere because mm. he's been to so many places. Um, and the Punjabi network so strong that you just put one message out. Is there anybody in Flani Flani Joga, right? And, and somebody some. will message back yeah. and say, yes, we're here. What do you need us to do? Um, and that's sort of how we go. And obviously, it also depends on where the catastrophe is, right? Like mm. somewhere like Turkey or Morocco, they're going to need more help mm. um, than, let's say, if it was in Texas, right? In right. Texas, you're going to have FEMA, Red right. Cross, Um, national guard, all of them are going to show up and there's going to be more assistance provided in, um, in countries like the United Kingdom or U S or Canada than there are in, in other less developed countries. Those countries are obviously the priority, Um, you know, where, where there's smaller organizations, there's less resources getting there. Um, In the U S typically what we see is, and we saw this in Hawaii, um, the initial response will be very strong from go- governmental yep. organizations. So FEMA will show up, World Kitchen will show up, Red Cross will show up, and they're almost, they sort of take over, but they take over for a couple of weeks, mm. right? After a few weeks, they pull out, they leave, and the locals are left to their own, re- their, 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 you know, to themselves. Um, and that is an important time to, to make sure that you're assisting. That makes sense. But you have to be there before that to build that relationship, so that once that happens, you can you can maintain uh, that relationship and get things done.
0: So, how do you? One thing I'm very curious about is, whenever you're going to any of these places, how do you have to interact with the local governments, if at all? Right. So that you know, like, do you, you know, disaster happens, and you were there for the Turkey earthquake, I think, uh, years ago. Yeah. Like, you know, how do you interact with the government? Saying, you know, can we come here? Like, what sort of what's the process? in terms of being able to, like, you know, this is what we're bringing, this is what we want to help with, or do you guys kind of, you know, more or less show up? We do a straight the style. We just show up. Just show right? up <laughs> you pack a bag, you
1: get off at the airport, and you arrive uh, at the epicenter, and you just start talking to people, right? And and from there, you'll sort of get a feel of, okay, this is needed here, this is needed here, okay, this is what we can do, this is what we can't do. Um, and you will find governmental organizations. Um, you know, Turkey was very, very organized. I was... Uh, Very pleasantly surprised at the level of organization they had. Uh, So essentially, not all the homes were destroyed. But their homes are are sort of similar to how we have in India. Like, they're not... You know, they're not earthquake proof yeah, yeah, yeah. and they're very hard. So cement, uh, cinder block, that sort of thing. Um, but there's no code, code enforcement there. I think they, there was one city that the mayor was 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 completely diligent about code enforcement and they didn't lose one single building. But everywhere else had a lot of damage. So they had told people whose homes were still standing and, and intact structurally, you know, their integrity was was fine. Um, sleep outside because we don't know what's going to happen. Those earthquakes daily. Uh, during that time. Um, so they had set up whole tent cities and they would, you'd pull up and say, Hey, what do you guys need? And they tell you, right. Um, and then, so we would use links that we have with organizations or, you know, suppliers to get things flown into Turkey. Um, we did meet with their governmental organization. We actually met with um, their head of disaster uh, response. We met the guy that was the initial person that was doing the search and rescue for the bodies. Um, you'd be surprised you show up and they know you're there. Um, you, you wear your call say t-shirt. Mm-hmm. They know you, you're, you're there for assistance. People will come up to you and tell you, Hey, are you here to help? You know, this mm-hmm. is what, this is what we need. So most of the time it's just show up and figure Bhag it out. Bachan.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Bagadipa Pashan. Yep.
1: Um, I mean, you know, and that's a big thing. That's a huge thing. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, you stand out and people will yeah. notice you. And I think people more and more are starting to realize That, uh, when they see somebody with the bug that they're here to help. Um, when I got to Poland, um, it was two weeks into the invasion of, of Ukraine. Um, so our team had gotten there like the next day because there were so many students that needed to be escorted to safety. Um, but that point we had already started to set up Lunga. There was no hot food there and it was already starting to get cold. It's very cold in the morning. It's very cold at night. Um, And there were busloads of people coming across the border uh, into Poland. We were like two kilometers away from from the Ukraine Poland border, uh, and huge human trafficking problem. Right? It's like it's a human disaster, and humans know how to make it even worse. Um, so they had people that were drivers that would take uh, refugees into Poland, like further into Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the refugees were either elderly, women, or children. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we got there early on, it was mostly women and children, and they were disappearing, right? So you would have to register and get an armband. If you're an aid worker, you had one. And if you're a driver, you had to get another one. And the driver had a higher scrutiny. So when you'd walk into where the actual um, refugees were sleeping, uh, you had to show your band. But it was amazing that when they'd see us, they just wait with sin. Because they knew, Judea, Hippagalia, they're here to help. and. These are people in Poland. I mean...
0: They've probably never seen us
1: with that. They've never seen us with that. I mean, they'd stare at us, but they were nice, right? And they just wave us in because they knew.
2: And just kind of going along with that Sikh culture, and in Sikhi and Punjabis kind of generally speaking, we kind of have this culture of Daswand, you know, giving back to the community, helping the Sangat, helping those in need. Um, Can you discuss to like what extent or where Khalsa AIDS funding comes from? Is it predominantly... Sangat members, is there large donors, corporate donors, that kind of thing?
1: So majority of um, of the money that we use, of our donations, uh, they come from individual donors. Um, mostly, I would say, you know, at least 95% is the Sangat, right? Um, there are a lot of non-sick that do donate. Um, and when I say a lot, I mean, again, out of the 5%, um, I process a lot of that. So... Uh, it's it's nice to see that in every batch of checks that come, there's multiple non-sick names, right? Um, some are Indian names that are non-sick, and some are completely westernized names, right? Like John Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a lot of employee giving programs that that do give money. We've had a couple of, um, you know, one-off donations from, from different firms whose employees have told them about CalSA aid. Uh, and they've seen projects that we're doing and they've wanted to donate as part of their corporate responsibility. Uh, that sort of thing. We don't, haven't had any grants. We haven't applied for any grants. Um, the Sangha leaves us with zero need to apply for any grants or anything like that. So most of it just comes from individual donors.
0: I think it was the first time during the Kisan Morcha I had seen an organization of any kind publicly post that, like, we don't need any more money right now. You know, we'd stop sending us money. We'll tell you when we need it. You know, and and,
1: and that's a big thing. And me and Jindipaji sometimes, um, we laugh at the fact that we're worried about it, right? And it's it's a very healthy worry to have that, you know what, the Sangat has given us all this money, all this support, right? Um, And they trust us. And that's squarely on our shoulders, right? To make sure that we spend that money in a responsible, effective way. Um, it, we it, it, It's amazing. We don't need to fundraise. In fact, we will tell people we're not raising money for that. We can't, we can't, if we accept this, we're telling people, you know, if we accept this, you have to understand that this time, this will go to the general fund. We will be spending X amount of money or whatever the need is on these projects, but we can't ear note your money for that particular purpose. And it's important to tell the Sangat that so that they know uh, they're not under any misconceptions, yeah, right? Sure, sure. Um, there are projects, uh, like the first time we had Punjab floods, um, Calisade was very new. And I think that's where people really found out that we we were, existed and that we had our 501c3 status uh, as a charitable organization, uh, where we did say we are going to fundraise and all of this money will be used towards Punjab floods. But after that, um, like the COVID at some point, we had to say, "Okay, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not going to fundraise for this anymore." The one thing that I did want to point out is uh, one of the major supporters that have been unbelievable in how they've assisted us with fundraising is the The Network. I don't know if you guys know yeah, about them; very, very they're amazing. Um, so anytime we do a designated fundraiser, we will tell them. Um, chances are Mandeep Singh, who's who's my contact over there, he'll call me and and we laugh because he's like, I know, I know, I know what you're gonna say. And I said, We're not fundraising at this point, but they've been amazing with fundraising and matching. So they um get general donations and then if they do a fundraiser for us, a lot of times they'll match up until a certain point.
2: And then just really quickly for our listeners that may not be Punjabi. Daswand is this concept in Sikhi, which means that you give back 10% of what you make to the community, to the Sangat or whoever.
0: Um, Have you, so you said, you know, for most of these um, trips you go on, you kind of show up, see what the local need is on the ground. Have you ever gotten pushback from either the local communities, the local governments, um, either on the ground when you're in a situation or just in general um, from an organizational perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say pushback, but you do get some uh, resistance, yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, where people, you know, you have to you have to think about who you're working with. You're working in an area with a population that's vulnerable, and they've been devastated by something that is is hard for the human psyche to uh, comprehend, deal with, and then you know operate on a normal in, on a nor- in a normal way. Um, so there's some that you just have to take that that's going to happen. Right? right. Um, and then you're ending up in a country, uh, that is foreign to you, right? right. Uh, it's not necessarily your home country. It's not a country that you're familiar with. Um, there's a cultural barrier, there's language barriers, all sorts of things that you have to work past. Uh, but we've never had it where we've completely had a door shut in our face. It's maybe just that you have to, keep on showing your face mm-hmm. so they know, okay, he, they are here to help. Um, and very quickly people will realize, okay, they're here to help. Um, they're not going anywhere. They, they want to assist and they'll open up to you. For example, in Hawaii, the first two days, uh, you know, the guys that they went with me, I've seen that happen where the first two days, you're just gathering information, seeing where can we fit in mm-hmm. um, and trying to see the same people multiple times a day, multiple days in a row, so that they build that trust and think, okay, this person's here to stay. This person really does want to help. Um, but it does take a day or two. So in Hawaii, the first question they ask is, are you with FEMA? Are you with Red Cross? Mm. Are you with world kitchen? They didn't want to work with them. Mm. Right. Um, so you have to go there and reassure them, tell them what you can do, find out what they need, start giving them small scale stuff and then they'll trust you on the bigger scale stuff. But it's just a matter of being there. For example, in Hawaii, um, we ended up – we did some supply runs, right? We'd go to Costco, load up the truck, go give out supplies, give out meals, give out food, that type of thing, right? But that's small scale considering what cost aid can do, right? Mm-hmm. But those are important preliminary steps because people see you doing that and say, hey, what are you doing? And then you can tell them, hey, we have a big budget. We could, we could do bigger projects. Um, and there was a hub. It was this grocery store. Um, and we kept on going back because it was a coffee shop that was making meals and delivering them to people. And we said, we can help you. We said, but we can only do vegetarian meals. We'll buy you the stuff. You guys do the cook. We'll pay your cook. We'll pay for your packaging. We'll do whatever you need. Um, how many meals can you do? And they were very reluctant to to talk to us, right? Um, but we kept on coming back. And the one thing that we kept on seeing was it was this big military truck there, like a military, like a personnel con- uh, a convoy. And we're like – it's not military. if do that the Guerardani, right? But this truck's here, so we kept on walking by the truck, right? You know, We like good Deana trucks, right? <laughs> so we kept on checking out the trucks, and uh, one of the guys comes over, he starts talking to us, and we're like, "Is this your truck?" He said, "Yeah, this is my my organization's truck." And we said, "What do you guys do?" And they said, "Oh, we partner with restaurants and local food suppliers, and we buy the food and we take it to the restaurants. The restaurants make meals, we pick up the meals, and we deliver them to people." We're like, this is what this is what we'll be looking for. And he goes, the guy, no joke, he looks at us and he goes, you know, you guys are Sikhs, right? And we said, yeah. And he said, we want to do something like you guys have at the Golden Temple. And I, I grabbed him and I hugged him. I said, you're the person we've been looking for. He's like, you know me? I was like, no, you're the person we've been looking for. I said, this is why we came here. That's what we want to do. So... We took his truck, <laughs> and Herjot, uh, Sarb, and Juggy. They, they went to Costco, and they told at Costco, they said, listen, we're going to load a truck, so we're not going to pick up individual items. We need you to help with the forklift, and they're like, so they look at the truck. They're like, okay, so they loaded that thing up, and it was like front to back. They loaded it up, and you know Hawaii's probably never seen three Sang with their darian blowing in the wind driving around in an army truck, you know. but you're there for four days, and that's where you end up, and that's the fun part. Where that that Punjabi Sikh spirit of you know the Kizo, uh yeah. comes into play, and now we've partnered with that organization. They're called Hungry Heroes for Hawaii, um, and we're going to be buying their weekly supply of the raw goods that they're going to use in making those meals. So, just just that trip made it all all that worth it for that one interaction.
0: Well, that, that's, a, that's a pretty awesome story. So uh, one thing kind of on the topic of, I guess, interaction with governments so that we did want to ask about to the extent you can talk about it is um, the relationship with India. So, uh, you know, we do understand a couple of months ago there was a, a raid of the Khalsaid office in Pertiala. Um What can you tell us about that and sort of what has the relationship been with the Indian government so far?
1: So um, the raid a couple of months ago, it's not something as shocking as it is, it's not that shocking in the sense that, um, it's not the first time that the office has been quote unquote raided, where the police shows that. up. Yeah. yeah. They show up and they say, we want to see this, that, or whatever. Um, they question the volunteers and the employees, uh, at length, uh, the questioning would be very absurd. Um, but we fully comply because we're operating fully within the law. Um, and, uh, You know, India has the FCRA where you can't transfer money to an Indian citizen, like or to an Indian uh, bank account, essentially Mm -hmm. without that designation. Um, And we don't do that, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, you are able to pay for goods, services, tuition, that sort of thing, and that's what we do. Um, And that's fully within within the FCRA. But I I I think the the bigger issue is um, they have a problem seeing an organization. Uh, that has the name Khalsa in it uh, that prominently showcases Sikh uh, ethics, ideals, um, and the Sikh face uh, across the world um, that bothers them, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And then also most of our members are very outspoken about human rights issues – Um, so it's just a constant, I mean, we're not the only organization, they do it to everybody. Um, and, and that one was, was a little bit more shocking because it was so national. it was so publicized nationally. And I think that was all, that was a little bit of, of propaganda on their part to, uh, to counter what we're now seeing with what's going on in Canada. That was Mm -hmm. sort of in between in response to that saying where there's a crackdown on quote unquote, Khalistanis. um, and so they lumped us in with that. You know, there's there's a constant drive to,
2: to malign cause of aid. Yeah. Um the irony of it is actually, I believe it was Pangvantaman himself, the chief minister of Punjab, or somebody high up in his cabinet. During the Punjab floods, the recent Punjab floods, they actually posted a video on Twitter and their social media saying, Hey, look, this is what we're doing for the people. And it was actually a Khalsa aid uh, yeah. group. And, uh, you know, the yeah. other politicians that are against him were making fun of him for it. Yeah. But, it, it, but it's, it's, you know, so interesting that on one side they're raiding you. And on the other side, the local politicians are using your guys' videos, your guys' pictures to yeah. show what we're doing, right? Yeah. Um, and then just kind of, I really love that story you told us about Hawaii and the 4G truck. Um, can you maybe tell us another particular, maybe, you know, memorable or favorite volunteer trip or maybe even a dangerous one? <sighs>
1: Man, there's so many. I, I would say every trip that I've gone on, not that I've been on a lot, but even stories that Ravi Bhaji's told us, and we're pushing them, we're like, write a book, write a book, you know, of all these that would be awesome amazing experiences that you've had. Um, you know, the even just the volunteers that we have. I remember see, I get choked up, man. I I think it's because I'm getting old now, but um you know, during COVID, that's when our teams really, really got built. That's mm-hmm. when we we started getting a lot of the dedicated volunteers that we have now. That's when they came, and we didn't know what to do. Right? Everybody was kind of like paralyzed. It's like paralysis by analysis, and operating do that a lot. Where discussion, good You don't do anything. Yeah. And that's why we, as an organization, just say, you know what, we'll discuss it once we get there. But don't volunteer, right? And there was. A lot of what we ended up decided doing is creating our own food pantries, doing a grocery supply. People could call in people that were immunocompromised, financially in trouble or old, and they couldn't go out to grocery stores. And what we did is, is we'd have volunteers get the order, pack a box and take it out and deliver it. Right. So volunteers would take a day off. They'd go to the food pantry. They'd load it up. They would put on gloves, mask, drive out and just do deliveries. And I remember there was a a volunteer in Florida. In Florida, only had one team, right? And everybody spread out there. Um, and it took him like over two hours to get to where he was going to deliver the groceries and more than two hours to get back. And he called uh, the the lead there and he said, Paji, I'm going to do the full delivery. And the lead started <clears throat> apologizing. Oh, Paji, I'm sorry it took you so long. And he goes, he's like, "Nay," He said, I'm happy that it took me that long. He said, I'm the, the effort being more for me to actually get it done made it mean more to me right and it's amazing when you have volunteers like that that that's how they look at it that yeah i only did one delivery but it took me five hours but i got five hours of volunteer time and you know going back to the swan um the swan's not just monetary. It is monetary, yeah. right? But the swan is also giving back your time, right? Helping somebody or doing you something for eat. somebody, right? Yes. Um, we had a volunteer here where um, an older lady called and uh, she said, I don't have my insulin, right? I need my insulin. Um, and she, her blood sugar was like, ridiculous. Like she was going to need to be hospitalized. So we had somebody quickly pick up an insulin monitor. Um, they picked up a prescription for it, took it to her and it it probably saved her life. Right. But there was somebody that like six in the morning, got out of bed and went and did this. And 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 I remember it was a girl volunteer, um, and, you know, I hate to say it because it sounds misogynistic, but I was like, are you sure? You know, because I'm sending a girl volunteer in the middle of the night to a stranger's house, a middle, you know, first thing in the morning to a stranger's house. You know, if something were to happen to her, her parents would be like, but she was like, nope, she's like, I want to do it. Um, and that's just here, you know, when we went to um, Poland, um, just little moments that, that you don't realize you know living here my son used to watch this show called huggy wuggy right it's the most ridiculous show you'd ever think of it's like this demented cookie monster looking puppet that crawls through the air vents and eats people right it's just a stupid cartoon or stupid little animation thing and i'd ask everybody here does, does your kid watch huggy wuggy and they're like no 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 Uh, And we went to a refugee center where there was 20,000 people that had fled Ukraine at the convention center in Warsaw, Poland. And we were going to switch our longer from the border to there because they had more refugees. And that's what we had gone to kind of negotiate. And there was a room that they had set up for kids. And I walked into the room and just looking around, like, what do they need? And I looked and this little boy's drawing huggy-wuggy on the wall, right? And I walked over to him. We don't speak. He, I don't speak Polish. I don't speak Ukrainian. I don't, he doesn't know what I'm saying, right? And I just walked over and I pointed. I made a bagel, but new, see, He's never seen a daughter before, right? And I pointed and I said, "Huggy Wuggy," and he got excited. He goes, "Yeah, Huggy Wuggy," right? But it struck me like that kid is no different than my kid, right? Like that kid is he's he's supposed to be at home playing, right? Not yeah. dealing with the war. Um, the next day it was like, well, about you DC. And you know how it is? Like when you want like a soda or something. So I went to the to the gas station and just bought we had to buy diesel to run our generators. And uh I went to uh to and I got coke, like just soda, right? So I'm pouring it for the team. And there was a little girl that just gotten off the bus with her mom. So the buses were coming over the border. they park, and our stall was the first one, right? We had fries. we make like 900 pounds of fries a day, right? But people there love fries. They call them fritkies. And so they'd stop. They'd have jaw. they'd have fries. So the mom's getting ja and fries. She's getting the little girl fries, and I'm pouring the soda. And I could tell the girl and the mom were talking to each other, but I couldn't understand what they were saying. And I looked at the mom and I said, Does she want soda? And she's like, No, it's okay. It's okay. Right. And I said, No, does she want it? And she goes, Yeah. And the little girl's not paying attention, but I poured it for her and I handed it to her. And she looked at me and she, she like touched herself and she's like, She's like, Soda? Soda? Like for me? And I said, Yeah. And she stared into that cup of soda and it was like all of her worries just disappeared. Right. And for me, it's nothing. Yeah. To her, it's just a cup of soda. Right. She probably forgot me the next minute. Right. But for me, like, I'll never forget that. And I went and bought a small bottle, and I looked for that little girl, like, two days in a row trying to find her. And I couldn't because she'd probably already gone farther into Poland to, you know, to safety or whatever. But I'll never forget. Like, it's just those little, little moments that you see, like, just being there and able, being able to give somebody something. You don't know what insignificant thing you can do that will mean something to somebody, yeah. right? Um, you know, in in – uh, Turkey when we went this is like a muslim country right and they're pretty conservative and we'd show up to do lungud and i i swear it's like we'd get swarmed like we're there to feed people that are hungry that that, that want to be fed they're in a we've got supplies and all they want to do is take pictures with us they're just like hugging us and like you know pointing to the blog and stuff and and they wanted to take pictures and it was just nice to see that people appreciate what you're doing for them and i think the the craziest thing was uh, we were walking And we're in Turkey Right And uh, Ravi Baji was there And he was walking Probably like 10-15 feet In front of me And we're going to eat And it's like 10 o'clock at night And The Iraq team was with us yeah. And they speak the same language And a group walked past us And then the group came running back And running towards me And the guy The Iraqi guy stopped her He's like Hold on You know They're talking or whatever And she's looking directly at me But talking to him And he looks at me, he goes, she says she knows Khal Saeed, and she pulls out her phone, and she shows us that she follows Khal Saeed on Instagram. Mm -hmm. She said, I've seen what you guys do in Iraq. I've seen what you guys do all around the world. I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. And I said, hold on a second. And I said, Baji. And he turns around and comes around the corner. And she looked at him, and she burst into tears. She's like, I've seen you. I've seen you on Instagram, right? And it's like the beauty of that was, one, your work's getting recognized. But she didn't recognize me. She recognized a bug, right? Right. And this is in a Muslim country, she knows somebody, they help people, right? And she was so moved that she met us, right? And that tells you that you 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 as an individual can have a huge impact when you give back and even devendra singh in in hawaii the you know we talked about getting him the buganum um he moved from <laughs> to maui and married a local right and i said only punjabis can do that move from a village in, in in a country like india straight to maui um and you know the locals there were very strong response same as like how punjab responded to the punjab floods right like helping each other helping one another helping your neighbor coming together uh, and he said uh, and he said he uh, goes and I thought the next day Pete from Canada he said day, Canada, he said and he goes he goes he goes and I was blown away he said he goes right? And then two days later, we're standing in front of him, you know, with buga, and he's like, <laughs> He's like, "Tusipon siya you know. So, to us, it's just booking a flight. We'll be Hawaii, right? Like, we don't want to go to Hawaii. But it doesn't matter what's going on there, right? Um, but for him, that was huge. For his family, it was huge. You know, to see like he has, uh, he has support, right? And we're in contact. We're in continued contact with him and stuff. Uh, so every time you go, there's some, and that's just me. I've only been on a couple, right? Um, but Ravi Paji has unending stories of, of amazing things that he's seen there.
2: I mean, just these, uh, sorry, just these amazing stories, you know, you've been on so many different places helping, you know, on the ground, doing seva. How do you balance, what's your work-life balance? How do you balance that with being an attorney?
1: <laughs> you know, what's funny is, uh, so we have a lot of the younger attorneys, and um, you guys are younger, so this is going to sound bad, but... I think the younger generation, um, you guys put that like at the forefront, right? Work-life balance, right? Which is a good thing. Um, I'm a little bit older than you guys, obviously. Um, and my parents were like, oh, but like I'm, you know, work comes first. Everything else is second, right? And what I've learned is and what I tell the, the younger attorneys is work-life balance, when we talk about balance, we say a balancing act, right? It's not a state of being balance is something that you have to constantly work on. And sometimes work's going to take up more time and sometimes life's going to take up more time. Um, and it is a huge time commitment. Uh Kalsa aid is probably time commitment wise, uh, almost a secondary full-time job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, I have a full-time job. Um, I'm a dad. I have responsibilities, you know, in that sense as well. Um, you know, but it it it's a balancing act right and you you have to balance um everything and you do have to sometimes delegate to somebody else or um I'm lucky that uh one of the other directors uh Monpreet who's in New York she's amazing like I can if she asks me to do something I'm not going to say no and if I ask her to do something she's not going to say no and we laugh that one day we're going to disagree and that's going to be a bad day because we're both kind of you know uh, stubborn and we, we've gotten along up until this point. And I think we will continue to, um, you know, but I can lean on her and she can lean on me and that's very important. Our leads are great. Um, but yeah, that's the best I can say is it's a balance, right? Because uh, yeah, my family does look at me when I'm like, I just finished a trial. I've been gone for like two, two and a half weeks at work the whole time. Totally focused when I'm at home. I'm in a bad mood because I'm like, you know, aggressive and and, and ready for an argument uh, because that's what I've been doing all day. And I think it was like, I think I finished the trial on Thursday at like 3.30 and Friday I went to work and I thought, oh, I got time, right? The jury's going to deliberate. And like at 9.45, the the court calls like, hey, we have a verdict. And I was like, okay. I went, got my verdict, came back, told my boss, and I booked a ticket for, for Hawaii. Um, so I came home and I was like, hey, I got a guilty verdict. Oh, okay, that's great, that's great. I'm going to Hawaii on Sunday, right? Uh, and I'll be gone for a week and a half, right? But what are they going to say? What's your family going to say? No, see you jacket, you know, Um But, yeah, the hard part isn't going. The hard part is saying, all right, I'll send somebody else this time because I've already gone to a couple and need to give somebody else a chance. And um,
0: I don't want garland from everybody. (laughs) No, for sure. So uh, one thing you kind of alluded to this at the beginning, but I'm very curious. Uh, When you're talking about sort of the reality on the ground is not always what the media portrays it. So, you know, in your experience from the trips you've been on, you know, maybe particularly in conflict zones or even just disaster zones in general – um, has there been that tension between, you know, how media is portraying a particular situation and your experience, um, that you've had in that place?
1: Not personally. I haven't had anybody that's told me, Hey, you can't say that or, 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 you know, um, seen something we've posted and objected to it. Um, but we have seen, you know, pushback like in Poland, um, the military was right there cause it was right on the border. Mm-hmm. So Poland at that time was a little bit nervous that Russia could, could invade and and come into Poland. Um, So there were times where they kind of threatened us, like you guys are going to have to leave. Right. Um, And the media was saying, uh, Oh, Poland's being very supportive, which they were. I mean, the local mayor, the, 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 the local mayor at the uh, in, in the town that the the refugee camp was, he came in at jaw every morning and he took pictures with every single one of us. He was amazing. Um. But there was a different narrative, like the Polish people were totally frustrated with having a huge influx from Ukraine. Mm. Um, So, you know, you see that and you understand that that's that's sort of just a dynamic that the news isn't going to show. Um, And then there's a lot of stuff where misinformation gets out because people think one thing and it's another. Um, The whole international students thing uh, that were in Ukraine and getting out, there was a lot of. Um, panic, rightfully so, you know, parents in India that were calling us saying we can't get a hold of our son, we can't get a hold of our daughter. Um, you know, and they thought that they were being mistreated. Well, a lot of them didn't have the right paperwork to get across the border into Poland. You know, Poland's still going to require a passport. Um, and Poland had said we'll allow any Ukrainians into uh, into Poland, uh, but the students technically weren't. So as an Indian, you need a visa to get into Poland. So there was that um and then the, the whole misinformation where Poland then lifted that restriction saying uh, we'll allow Indians into Poland and then all of a sudden the news in Punjab was like, Oh, Poland the visa you know, and we're like, No, no, that's not what they're saying. They're saying if you're an international student from India, you can come into <laughs> Poland for the time being. It's not like they've 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 suspended all visa requirements for all Indians. Um so just just stuff like that, but never anything on a on a on a large enough scale that it's uh, it's been a total uh, detriment to the to the project.
0: Have you ever been on a trip, or have heard of others going on a trip? You know, particularly maybe in a conflict zone that's been particularly dangerous, or they've dealt with you know you know potential violence or something that's been um, you know in their immediate vicinity <laughs> when they've been volunteering.
1: Yeah, um, our Iraq team. I mean, Iraq that team. camp popped up uh, to serve the women that were coming back, escaping ISIS mm-hmm. uh, sex trade. Um, Yazidi uh, women. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, and they, at that time there was, there was conflict. Like mm-hmm. when you'd be at the refugee camp that we were running, um, you would hear, you would hear gunfire right within the distance. It was close enough that you could hear gun battles between ISIS and Iraq fighters. Um, you know, uh, Ravi Baji has had some experiences in in African countries where um, one time they were followed and they had to to hide in the kid. And then, you know, their passports and, and their cash was taken from them, uh, you know, by these armed, uh, basically gangsters, militia. Um, and they went back to the hotel. This is an amazing story that he tells. They went back to the hotel and when they walk in, there's a guy sitting there and – He was African, but he was a Muslim, and he saw Baji and them and said, what are you guys doing here? And they said, you know, we came here for a project, whatever. Baji's in a bad mood because, you know, uh, everything that had happened. And uh, the guy said something to Baji, and, you know, Baji must have made a comment that let the guy know that he was irritated. The guy goes, what happened? So Baji tells him, this is what happened. And he goes, okay. He goes, you go rest. He goes, you meet me in the morning. You know, here, we'll have breakfast together. So Paji goes, all right, whatever, right? Uh, in the morning, he comes down, and uh, they sit down to eat breakfast with them. and there's a line of guys in the lobby. And he goes to Paji. He says, are these the guys? And Paji goes, yeah. He goes, what do you mean, are these the guys? He's like, are these the guys? And he said, yeah, these are the guys. They took our stuff. And he, he points to the table, and all the stuff's on the table. And he goes, yeah. He's like, what do you want me to do with them? And Paji's like, what do you mean? He's like, what do you want me to do with them? Baji's like, just let them leave. Uh, And the guy knew exactly who it was. And it turns out that that guy, he told Baji them after the fact. He was a very powerful businessman in the area. And over there, you can only be powerful if you know the militias, right? But his best friend was a sick. And his best friend and the wife died in a car accident. Very seriously injured in a car accident. And on his deathbed, his... Uh, his best friend said, I want, you have to raise my kids under one condition. He said, what? He said, raise them as sick. So the guy said, I'm a Muslim man, but my son's a sick. That's how he started the conversation with Baji. He said, I'm a Muslim man, but my son's a sick. Baji's like, what? So then he told him the story and he said, so my best friend was a sick and I raised his kids. He said, so when I saw you and I, and somebody had done something wrong, he's like, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't withstand that. Right. Um. So very dangerous situation, but yeah. it worked out amazingly again, because right? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of stories like that that he has that, that will blow your mind. You know, being chased on the back of a motorcycle, you got a sack of cash, you know, you try to do uh, trying to do Seba. um he, He's got way better stories than, than I do, but um that one always always sticks out to me
0: you talked about this also a little while ago um that you know some of these situations are dangerous you're you're referencing the hawaii story um with the woman volunteer who was who was there um you know i think there's a lot of sort of punjabi cultural aspects where people are maybe you know Afraid to send family members who are women, you know, or let let them go, shall we say, to these places. Yeah. Are there a lot of women volunteers now who go on some of these trips, or is it um still mostly men or
1: No. Um I would say that there's there's both. Um and Colise USA is very lucky in the sense that um, we have a lot of women in leadership roles. And I think that's, that's awesome. very important, right? Yeah, I think absolutely. women bring a totally different outlook aspect um to to any organization, right? And we've, we've historically seen, um, you know, when you have a gordura committee or whatever it is, um, male dominated, there's a lot of issues that arise simply because it's a bunch of, bunch of bande right? Mm-hmm. Um, women bring a different dynamic. Um, they have a lot to add. They're, they're absolutely vital partners, um, in all of our organizations. Um, I'll I'll be honest I I don't most major decisions that that Coliseum has to be made Monpreet and I make them together mm-hmm. um you know I always want her opinion on things she has a different take on things than I do she'll point out things that I don't see um and if I if she wasn't if she wasn't part of Coliseum, Coliseum wouldn't run how it was and she started as as the New Jersey lead and we asked will you please step into a larger role and she did um, and Kalsa Aid has grown and flourished, uh, all credit to her, right? right. I, I would have to say that a, a huge chunk of Kalsa Aid's success in the United States um, is directly a result of, of her participation um, and her leadership. Uh, a lot of our teams, I would say, majority of our teams, the leads are are women. Um, most of, uh, there's some teams where it's like, there's one or two guys that go along with them, mm-hmm. but they're not the ones running the show, right? It's, it's, it's the, it's the women that are running the show. So, um, we have not experienced that, nor have we, um, we shied away from sending, uh, female volunteers. We had multiple female volunteers in Turkey. We had multiple female volunteers currently in Morocco, uh, in Africa, in Poland, with me, there was Montbreath was there, Stevie was there, um, so we had multiple female volunteers.
0: That's awesome. And actually, one other thing I wanted to ask you about because you mentioned at the beginning uh, of our discussion as well, I th- there's a perception or was a perception that Kalsai didn't do as much work in Punjab. I think it's obviously not true. You guys have an office there. You worked, um, yep. you know, alongside uh, folks there, locals uh, during the situation with the floods recently. Um, but I think like even. Amritpal Singh when he was like discussing some of these things that, you know, I don't think he ever mentioned calls aid specifically, but I think the perception, at least in the public and was like,
2: I, I think he called out, did Ravi, he, actually? he called out
0: Ravi Singh multiple okay, times by name. Yeah. And so I the, think
2: they did have some back and forth on social media or something like that. Yeah. What is maybe your, not directly though.
0: Yeah. I guess my question is like, what is sort of, you know, calls aid's response to this idea that, you know, their focus is more on people in other places um and the focus should be more on, on Punjab. <laughs> It's just not
1: true, Um, you know, and I can see that – I think a lot of that commentary comes from a good place, right? Everybody wants to help Punjab, and we want Punjab to be um, the main focus, and Punjab is uh, the main focus, right? If you look at – if you had to quantify our focus, uh, our focus is humanitarian aid, but, you know, you're never going to have a country in Africa – Um, that matches the amount of focus that we place on Punjab or in Hawaii. Those are one-off projects that we may go back to multiple times, but Punjab, we have a consistent, constant presence, right? Um, We have multiple projects in Punjab that may not be the glitzy and glamorous projects that people see. People see, um, you know, you in a war zone and that's what catches their attention, right? You post a picture of a school, nobody cares. Nobody pays attention to that, right? Sure. There's multiple schools, there's a hospital, um, there's Shahid Bravaz, there's medical projects that are ongoing where people apply to us and say, hey, we can't pay our medical bills or we need cancer treatment or we need um, dialysis and we cover all that. Dialysis centers, um, clean water projects, all of those things are ongoing projects that people may not know about. Um, but the the one thing that I would say is important to point out is this is when people say only do seva in Punjab I'll tell you why that is um a bad model right mm-hmm. so when Punjab floods in 2019 happened um and we're transparent so I'm going to give you dollar amounts right uh, when Punjab 2019 when the initial floods happened when the Bhakra dam was opened right um, said USA was a charitable organization at the time, and uh, we did say we will accept funds for Calisade, for uh, projects for the floods, right? Um, in a matter of about three months, uh, the Sangha donated $350,000, right? Not a small amount mm-hmm. by any means. Huge amount, right? Uh, especially when you consider you're going to be doing projects in India with that. Uh, when the COVID Crisis happened. The second wave of COVID in India, we did not fundraise. We did not say, "Hey, we're going to fundraise. You know, send us money or whatever." Um, all we said is, "Is this is what we're doing in India? They needed oxygen concentrators. They need medical supplies. We said we're going to do that, um, and we made several large purchases towards uh, towards oxygen concentrators, which ninety percent went to Punjab and the other 10% may have been in Delhi for some period of time. And then they also were transferred to Punjab. Um, When we announced that we were doing a project for all of India and other parts of the world to assist with COVID, because we did send some to Africa, we sent some to I think the consulate of Trinidad and Tobago contacted us and they needed like a hundred oxygen concentrators as well. Um, When we did that, we spent $1.4 million in Punjab. Right. So when you announce a Punjab specific project, Mm -hmm. you have $350,000. When you announce a worldwide project, you're able to spend $1.4 million in Punjab. There will never come a time where Khalsa Aid will say, we can't do that project in Punjab because we're drilling boreholes in Africa. It won't happen. Right. right. right? And if anybody has any doubt, I'll let you know. Right. If that happens, you can call me and say you said this that you guys you guys would never turn down a project in Punjab to do a project somewhere else. Um, that just simply won't happen. We will we, we any any viable project that can be done in Punjab, um, we're gonna we're gonna work towards it.
2: Just quickly, another critique that I've seen often, commonly online, and actually from the same circles that critique you for quote unquote not doing enough in Punjab, they also criticize you guys for you know being called Khalsa Aid yet you guys aren't doing parchar to these other areas. I mean, obviously that's not your guys' mission, um, but at the same time, can you touch on that a bit? Maybe, you know, obviously you guys, many of you wear pugs, many of you guys have daris. Um, are there times where people come up to you guys and ask you what your beliefs are, um, things like that? Do you guys go more in depth on what it, you know, what it means to be a sick more so than just, you know, the physical bana?
1: I think, you know, like you said, people come up and ask or, or, or people see you, there is an aspect of Pratad to that, right? When you go into a country where they've never seen a Sardar and all of a sudden you're helping, right? And they see somebody, um, you know, uh, people do ask questions and you tell them, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. This is a requirement of our faith to uh, to live within our communities and to give back to the best of our abilities. Um, So we do, we do explain a lot of that. And I think Sikhi is uh, one of the most beautiful things about Sikhi is um, it's so open uh, that any faith you talk to, there's something that resonates with it, right? And uh, obviously a lot of faiths are like that, but um, it becomes a bonding moment, right? Um, And I think there's a lot of people in the world that know about Sikhi um, because sick have gone out and done seva, not just with class aid, but with any other organization. Uh, and that is perchad in and of itself. Um, you know, it would be very difficult to have every single volunteer, um, be a perchadic, right? I think perchadics, and, and this is probably, you know, uh, something that we need to look at is, you know, perchadics have a huge responsibility about what they convey, how they convey it, um, and that they're accurate, right? So from a, should we do Purchar standpoint, you know, as to that question, no, I, I don't think it would be responsible for us to expect every volunteer um, who we're asking to go and, and serve Langar um, to also be so well versed that they could be an accurate, effective Purcharic, right? Um, but but you're creating people that want to do Seva, that want to reach out and show people that. Um, not just tell people what we're about, but show them what we're about. So, I, I, I anybody that says you know, you're, you're, you're narrowing the de- definition of what porzad is by saying that.
0: I think. Yeah. Are there uh, sort of specific aspects of Cal USA or even globally that you are trying to grow at this point in terms of volunteership, in terms of fundraising, um, you know, going to you know, greater number of countries. Um, and kind of, I would say like a sort of an analog to that. What aspects of Cal State's organization do you think have made it so successful so far? Uh, in terms of what we're trying to grow, we're always trying to grow, um,
1: the volunteer base. The more volunteers we have, the more we can do. Uh, and I would say the most difficult thing, especially here in the United States, um, that we're working towards is getting bigger projects where so we can have a bigger impact right our local teams can go out and do routine projects where they work with homeless population with battered women shelters um with local schools and uh and do those consistent drives that we have that we make sure are a staple for every single chapter um you know annual drives uh, back to school drive uh, during december we do the mata Shota short drive where we give winter supplies uh, to to the local uh, population, whoever's is in need, um, you know, but we want to have bigger, bigger, uh, bigger projects, right? Like in Hawaii, um, that will be a, a bigger project. Uh, we started projects uh, in Mexico, just south of the border. Um, a lot of times, what happens is people will migrate from uh, from Latin American countries to Mexico um, to get over the border. But once they get to that border, they don't have the money to get over, right? They have to, they have to wait um and these are young families or mothers with young children uh and they they don't have anything to eat so we've partnered with an organization refugee health alliance um they provide medical assistance but also meals uh and we're doing you know several hundred meals at two locations uh through them uh we're working in Guatemala so we're trying to do bigger projects that don't have to necessarily be within the continental united states um but the main thing that we're trying to do is is have bigger projects that have a bigger a bigger reach um, that's the main goal that we have right now in terms of of why call to aid uh, has been successful uh, i think it's twofold right um, on the 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 face of it it's you've created a platform uh, for people that that can't necessarily maybe designate a lot of time to go out and do something on their own to be involved, Mm -hmm. right? You have somebody organizing the seva, um, you have a group of people, you're, you're, you're spreading the effort across, you know, a number of people. So there's less that you have to do. um, Or some people are just going to donate because that's, that's the amount of commitment that they can have. So I think the success of it is it's allowed uh, people to be involved uh, where if they had to do it on their own, they wouldn't be able to, right? So it's a platform to it, basically, we are the middleman, right? Yep. The way we look at it. Um, and, and Ravi Bhadji will tell the same thing is we don't make this possible. The Sangat makes it possible. We're taking the Sangat's wishes and getting them to who needs them, right? We're the middleman. Um, and I think that's the why Why there's a, a, such a, a high level of success is every Sikh wants to do something. There's that ketchup Endia, right? That I want to do say, I want to give back. I want to fulfill that requirement of, of my faith. Um, and, and Kalsa aid is a platform that makes that possible. Uh, the thing that I think really makes people want to do it is seeing the real results, right? It's like you give the money and you watch on social media and you're like, I contributed to that cause, right? Like you make a donation and all of a sudden you see the team in Morocco helping somebody and you see smiling kids and you see, um, you know, old lady hugging the volunteers, um, and that makes it worth it. And I think it's, you know, uh, Sheikh Farid says, you know, uh, that, you know, live your life. And when you see somebody and you see Vaiguru in them, you can only see Vaiguru in them because you have Vaiguru in you. And so when you're part of something where you see somebody that needed something and their, their wish being fulfilled and you just see pure appreciation and happiness on that person's face, you feel better, right? The world feels like a little bit of a better place and everybody needs that now because the world's kind of <laughs> kind of a dark, you know, scary place right now. Um, so I think it just fulfills a drive to want to do Seva, but also a drive to want to feel good about connecting with people uh, that otherwise you probably just wouldn't be able to connect with, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's what it is. It's just a
2: platform that links people together. And then how can we and our listeners support Kalsaide, Kalsaide USA?
1: Um, volunteer if you can, um, on whatever level. Um, the CalSaid USA Instagram page has a link at the top where you can fill out the volunteer information. Um, you know, we have teams in most me- large metropolitan areas. Um, you know, link with them. You don't have to go every single week or every other week, you know, once in a while, I'll do SEVA. Um, or help us find the seva, right? If you live in an area where there isn't a team, um, but there's a project there or an organization that you see doing good work, um, tell us. Reach out to them and say, "Hey, what do you need?" I know an organization that may be able to help you. Um, you know, put us in in contact with those organizations. Share the posts so that other people see them. Um, you know, that, that's, that's mainly what it is, is just get it out there. We're not shying away. Um, it's more, you know, help us do more, right? We just want to do more. So whatever you can do to assist that, whether it's volunteer on your own or, or give us the resources to link with, with organizations in your area or, or groups in your area that are doing good work, that's what we need. We just want to do more.
0: Ulgir, thanks so much. Uh, you know, it's really great uh, getting to learn a lot more about the organization and the work you do. Um, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. And we're very excited to see how Khal Saeed grows and continues to do this important seva uh, in the future. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Guruji Ka Bye,